Welcome once again to Benchworld, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund an Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so welcome everyone. We're very happy, we're excited to have you in our last webinar for this year. Today we will be talking about what's next, trends for 2021. First of all, thank you to all of our participants. I would like to thank you, or Alice, Asim, Israel Trade, EGADE, GAN, Generation S, Global Corporate Venturing, Innova360, IBCA, LAPCA, and BC Academy. And obviously we will, we welcome and we thank you our guest speakers, Clean Corber and Aaron Applebaum. So about Clean, Clean, he's a co-founder and managing director of Fulu Ventures, a Silicon Valley seed stage venture firm investing in enterprise IT, FinTech and startups led by diverse founders. He has strong experience in decision-making and uncertainty he designed Olo's investment process to combine data and intuition to minimize con cognitive biases, reduce risk, and produce better, more consistent returns. Thank you, Clint, for being today with us. We also Glad have to be Aaron, here. Thank you, Clint. We also have Aaron Applebaum. Aaron, his partner at Misma Ventures. He sits on the boards of Utopia and Protego, and he has an observer board in Aurora Labs. Aaron, he, he was a principal and director of strategic at Cyber Ventures, at Cyber Security Focus Venture Capital Fund, where he helped lead the firm efforts to identify the sectors for investment, play a critical role throughout the investment evaluation and execution process. Thank you, Aaron, for being today with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's start. So what did 2020 mean for both of you? Maybe we can start with you, Clint. Yeah, well, I mean, it was uh, certainly a year of mixed emotions. I mean, so like on a personal front, it was sad to see so much suffering. And actually, my wife's father passed away from COVID. So, you know, we, we were we experienced some of this directly. Uh, and at the same time, I'm actually grateful to the entrepreneurs and the other people in our ecosystem for exhibiting such courage and working through, you know, what interesting that started out being a really challenging circumstance from a business point of view. And, you know, it's, you know, somewhat unexpectedly, it's become a very robust environment for technology companies and startup companies, you know, in kind of this challenging time. Yeah. And, and, and to just um, echo uh, what Clinton has said, again, a, a lot of, a lot of personal suffering, um, uh, loss, sickness, and and uh, that's been very, very difficult. And a lot of small, medium businesses are are really pushed to the edge um, 
and we're going to see uh, fallout from this probably for the next couple of years uh, in in recovery, kind of outside of outside of the high tech, high growth uh, IPO market. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, pressure makes diamonds, um, and we're in an industry that's uh, fundamentally about iterating quickly. Uh, under pressure, uh, having to beat the incumbents, having to, and in a world of uncertainty, it really is for the startup, for the technologist, for the entrepreneur to inherit. And I think we saw that in spades, both within the existing portfolio and within uh, new investments we decided to make. One final observation, you know, this is uh, enough a topic on its own, um, but we saw we 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 saw in many ways this um, regression towards perceived quality, right? Where people were there's still a lot of money in the system, and there's a lot of uh, adversity to to risk or perceived risk, and so you see fewer larger rounds in uh, second third time entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs with particularly strong backgrounds or. So we saw seeds grow, we saw A's grow uh, all the way up the chain, all the way up the stack, all the way to the public markets. Um, so I'd say that the top of the funnel in many ways shrunk, but the bottom of the funnel in some ways grew. And I think that's uh, an interesting thing. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Aaron and Clint, I think everyone here agree with you. And I mean, obviously 2020 was a very hard year. Uh, I think this will be remembered as the year of the virtual reality Certainly, uh, COVID-19 hit, and it was uh, the black swan event of the decade, of the century. But it brought all, along with it a lot of opportunities as well. And, I mean, we understand that there were a lot of technologies that accelerated, that perhaps were about to happen uh, in two, five, perhaps 10 years, and it, they, they, they accelerated and, and, and they happened uh, today. So what are those, the, those technologies that you never thought of looking at this year? Perhaps, perhaps Aaron, we can begin with you. Yeah, so technologies I wouldn't have otherwise thought to look at, um, but 2020 kind of thrust into the spotlight and made core, much more core to the thesis. Um, you know, I think a lot, of, a lot of what we're seeing in, in cloud migration, um, so, you know, it's somewhere it's 20, 25% of, of workloads are in the cloud and um, core critical pieces of large institutions are still pretty much on prem. And there's all sorts of regulation and, and, and data loss prevention concerns and vendor lock-in concerns and outage. Google just went down for a period. Um, and so I think looking at the preeminent players, the uh, GCP, the Azure, um, the AWS as the incumbents and not really wanting um, to play too close to their core businesses because there's nothing they can't do. They're growing so rapidly. Uh, you'll just get uh, uh, subsumed and, and, and beaten out. And I think what one of the things that COVID showed is that there is so much room for growth and rapid adoption and that people, because of remote work and because of distributed workforce and because of um, 
the ability, the, the, the necessity to have geographic spread, you need thing, things to be portable. You need uh, multiple clouds in multiple places. You need the ability to migrate from one to the other. Um, and there's just more data created at accelerating paces. Machines are creating more data than humans these days. And there's just no good way, even with the, with the incumbent players, to store it, make use of it, query it, create real business insights. And so uh, if not for, for COVID, I probably would have relegated a lot of that innovation to the big guys. And I think that there's a huge part for, for early stage tech guys to play in that space. And I, I guess I would I would echo with Aaron. I think in general, there's just been this very large behavior change that's happened in the industry. I mean, people have been forced online. And so that's accelerated a lot of technologies. In terms of the one that I never would have thought of is basically Zoom becoming a platform. I mean, so like, you know, pre-COVID, I mean, you know, Zoom was, you know, it's a kind of this, you know, secondary kind of tool. It's a, you know, a bit better than some of the other online webinars and whatnot. But, but I mean, you know, we're now seeing on a regular basis, we haven't made an investment, but basically companies building on top of Zoom as a platform, just like you know, companies build on top of Facebook or Google or Microsoft or that sort of thing. So that's been a surprise. I never would have thought about that at the beginning of the year. So based on that, do you, do you see any winning technology this year? Is there something that it's really the winning technology? Well, so I'd say, Every technology online has won this year. I mean, it's 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 a little crazy when you think about um, just how many areas are doing well. And I'd say this really, there's sort of two things driving that in my mind. So first is this behavior change, right? So everybody, so many people are forced to go online. And I've heard people say, you know, we got some, you know, five plus years of user adoption um, advanced, you know, just over the first couple of months of uh, COVID. And I think that's continued. And then and once these things get built into standard operating procedures and processes and whatnot, I don't think we're going backwards on any of that stuff. So, so the other thing that's created huge wins across the board, I think for online technologies is uh, actually the stimulus dollars. And it's not that these stimulus dollars went into technology companies, but essentially it's created a zero interest rate environment. And so now you've got huge amounts of capital looking for yield and it's basically going into the public markets and a bunch of it's going into the private markets too. And it's created this incredibly, you know, basically rich environment for technology companies to get funding and for companies to go public. I mean, like some of the valuations are just kind of crazy right now. Um, so like, you know, Zoom is trading at 60 times revenue. Uh, by the way, Palantir, which is one of our companies, is trading at 50 times revenue. And by the way, I like Palantir. I think it's a great company, but I'm not quite sure it's worth 50 times revenue. Snowflake, by the way, is 200 times revenue. So I, I, and by the way, I, I think that's more a function of a lot of capital looking for places to go, more so than call it a technology shift so much in the marketplace. But I, but I do think this money looking for places to go, it's going to be around for a while. I mean, I don't think we're going to be out of a zero interest rate environment for quite some time. Yeah, I, 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 so I, I think those observations are, uh, are, are spot on um, to, to the Zoom as a platform um, coming you know, by virtue of these behavioral changes. You know, Zoom is now a cornerstone of, of everyone's day. And so it's become... The calendar and it's become the communication tool and it's become you know core what we're seeing to, to dovetail a little on that theme 
is new challenges using existing technology. So if you look at education, for example, and uh, the, the communication requirements for a professor-student relationship. So Zoom is great for facilitating things like this in breakout rooms and the functionality has gotten very rich, but how do you grade participation or quality of participation? Or there's so, there's so much nuance in education is an, an, an enormous industry and grading participation is a huge piece of, of the student-professor relationship. And it's a new challenge. It's something that, um, that previously had been largely gut, largely pen and paper. Now all of it can be collected and quantified and analyzed and used. And there's an equivalent for not just education, you're seeing that in medicine, right? This, this accelerated adoption of telemedicine by virtue of, you know, you don't want to go near a, a hospital that has COVID patients and uh, uh, doctors are overwhelmed and we should have had this shift seven, eight years ago, if not longer. Um, but now it's about new privacy concerns, cyber concerns, collection concerns, diagnostic concerns, quality of your camera concerns. There are all these ancillary things that these new fundamental core technologies are now having to solve, uh, which is another huge area for opportunity, but you know, more, definitely more questions than answers. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's relevant that you mentioned all these shifts in behavior overall around the globe in every industry. I mean, it's not only uh, working from home or education or, or, or telemedicine. I mean, I think that was a, a, a common factor for every vertical in every geography. And I mean, right now, um, let's start uh, thinking about the future. We are entering a second, perhaps third lockdown in some geographies. Uh, we have the vaccine around the corner. We have an expectation that sometime next year, uh, things we're gonna are, are gonna uh, go back to normal potentially. But we are we, we at these ventures. We like to think uh, as 2021 as a year of more like a hybrid reality. We think there are some habits and some behaviors that will obviously remain. Will 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 thrive through the 2021 and some others will die. So which ones do you think will, will survive through 2021? I mean, I don't know, Aaron, perhaps can you, can you begin or, or Clint, whoever wants? Sure. Um, yeah, so sur survival through 2021. And, and I, think, I think Clint said it correctly. Uh, a lot of what we've seen now isn't, these aren't, these aren't short-term 12 month adjust adjustments. These are fundamental behavioral shifts. Um, that I think are well, is some of it as simple as digital transformation, shifting from uh, uh, pen and paper to, um, you know, kind of the, what, what, what DocuSign did a little while back, another company that's, that's, that's valued rather highly, uh, what DocuSign did uh, a little while back, you're seeing in every facet, right? You're seeing it in um, freight forwarding and bills of lading. You're seeing it in, um, in HR reviews and recruitment, you're seeing. Uh, so I think um, I think digital transformation uh, is something that is is accelerated here to stay. Um, I think uh, in, ter in in terms of how cities operate behaviorally. Back to to Clint's behavioral thesis. Um, urban logistics. You know, people used to have to move through space to accomplish goals. Now the things are moving to the people. Um, you know, my, my, my mother's, you know, in her 60s and 
loves going to the grocery store, loves, you know, she's been receiving, I don't see her not using Amazon Prime ever again. It just makes sense. And the quality's good and the timing's good. And she's a very, very busy woman. You know, she, she manages the largest income fund in the United States. Um, and so now the ability to balance in all these new ways. So I think uh, uh, urbanization and, uh, and, and logistics and is, is never going to be the same. And, and I, I would just um, add to that something Aaron mentioned in the last question, which is telehealth. So I think, you know, telehealth in a lot of ways, on paper, this should have happened, you know, five, seven years ago, that sort of thing. It just makes so much sense from an economic point of view, from the quality of care point of view. And for whatever reason, it's just really struggled to get momentum. And, uh, you know, I, I think 2020 could be a tipping point for telehealth and we're just scratching the surface of what's possible there. So that would be like one potential area. You know, another potential area that I just see having continued momentum is security. I mean, there's like, you know, constantly new laws with respect to, you know, data in different geographies. And, you know, there's increasing sensitivities from a consumer point of view. And there's just like just so many more things happen to your data that a lot of people don't aren't aware of. So I think that'll be an area that'll be pretty rich. You know, on the die side, so I don't see how SPACs continue their, their momentum right now. I mean, it's, by the way, I think it's a really clever financial innovation. And so I think there's definitely a place in the capital stack for SPACs. But the, but the thing that gives me a little pause, if you look at like, well, who's actually putting the SPACs together? So, you know, originally it was kind of like, you know, there are people putting it together like, oh my God, yeah, that's, that's a person that I would want to have take my company public, right? They're, you know, that kind of branded person with that kind of background and so forth. But anymore, there are people putting these SPACs together. It's like have like you know, very little background in finance, in their areas and whatnot, and, but they're just able to raise the capital somehow. So, so I, I just, I think SPACs are overhyped right now and I'm hoping there's going to be a little bit of a, a die off there. Um, just to be a little controversial, I'll put AI on the, I don't think it's going to die so much, but I think AI is, um, you know, even, even though the hype's off a little bit, I still think it's overhyped. And I think that what most people call AI is just actually using some math on some data to, you know, help improve your products. So it's like, like most AI is actually really simple math at the end of the day that adds the value. So, so, I, so I think, by the way, we're, we're investors in that. So smart data is one of our investment theses, and that's been an area of mine for 12 years. Um, I just think that the whole AI thing is a little overblown. Yeah, so as, as you point out, as you point out, Clean, obviously we believe that technological trends are driven by either the, the context, unprecedented context, boosting opportunities, such as, you know, as you pointed out, the SPACs, Zoom, telemedicine and, 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 so, and so many other technologies. And also it could be the natural development of the market. So do you think 2021 trends will be context driven so, such as the COVID or market driven? And in your opinion, what will be the technological trends for 2021? Yeah, you know, it's, so it's a, uh... At, at, at the at the risk of sort of seeing a little like unoriginal, you know, I I, I think 2021 is going to be like people catching their breaths a little bit from 2020, and and you you've got these large trends. I think we're going to talk about them in a, in, a, in a little bit, like you know, 
So like Im embedded finance, I think there's, there's a huge amount of innovation in finance that's, that's now going mainstream. And so I, so I think that's a, you know, but that's been going on for a while. That was a pre-COVID trend. And I think COVID just kind of accelerated that trend. And, and likewise, the, um, you know, things like remote work, you know, was a, was a, it was a pre-COVID trend and COVID just like, you know, accelerated that by 10x. You know, the other interesting trend I think coming up is going to be a return to work. So like, you know, what, what does that mean, right? Okay, we got half your workforce vaccinated, the other half the workforce not vaccinated. It's like, how do you manage all that? And we, we've got a couple of our companies that have sort of pivoted into this return to work area and how do you just manage your workforce? And, you know, and I think that's, I mean, that, that's going to be around for, you know, it's interesting. I think it's just not a next year sort of thing, but there's a lot of big companies that are now things like, oh, you know, we, we just have to plan for the next one, right? So, so now we've got COVID figured out, we just can't be caught flat footed and like, you know, whatever other crisis is next. So, so I think the whole return to work is going to be a big area. And then, you know, for not to be a little too morbid about it, but the whole out of work, Right. I mean, I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of folks that are have gotten dislocated and, you know, it's like there, there are these, you know, basically uh, government programs and so forth that have sort of, uh, you know, hidden some of that true cost or some of that true pain. But when some of these government programs go away, like, you know, like like I really worry about evictions, for example. I mean, so like in the U.S. right now, there's rules where you can't evict people for lack for not paying rent. But now you've got literally millions of people that are in this in this circumstance where you know they can't make the back pay on the rent, and when these lack of eviction um, rules stop, like what happens? So I, I don't I don't know that that's I mean you know I guess this would be an area where I would hope to find some entrepreneurs looking to come up with some clever solutions to you know housing out of work you know what happens to the economy and these folks that are in some, some ways left out. Of what's going on in the economy and if there can be clever solutions there that'd be a that'd be a technology trend i'd love to see yeah um uh, to break it down so so one of one of the remote work back to work hybrid uh, uh trends that we're focused on is in is an area of particular interest to me are the whole um ops tools so um, ML ops, for example, right? To kind of blend the, the previous two questions, right? So um, I, I agree, by the way, that I think artificial intelligence is, it, it's, it's, it's fancy statistics. Um, and, uh, and that's very, very useful. And when you have a lot of data and you want to predict things better than uh, we were, you, you need fancy statistics. Uh, and it's nice when machines get better at training themselves. It's a very, very human process um, to be, on the research side, to be on the question asking side, to be on. So the whole world of coordinating, while it's not, while the tech itself isn't, isn't magic, AI isn't the magic that people were making it out to be 24 months ago, 36 months ago, uh, it's an important thing. And we're not ever going to be done, at least not in the foreseeable future with the tagging and the versioning and the indexing and the running the, 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 the models and testing and then trade, right? These are all parts of, and, and, and these teams have largely been co-located. Um, so how do you start living this AI, 
uh, or machine learning or deep learning or whatever methodology, how do you, how do you kind of coordinate those moving pieces? Uh, and so we're looking at horizontal solutions that solve that. And very similar, similarly, not just in AI specifically, but engineering is a broader topic. Um, DevOps for better and for worse has been on this, on this, this remote train for a while. All the, all the, um, the fixed costs have become variable costs with this move to the cloud and serverless and uh, agile development and uh, having many pushes and being very iterative and, you know, and that's hard to coordinate on different time zones in different ways and not making sure that you have all the, all the security audits necessary uh, so that when applications or, or, you know, web, mobile or otherwise get pushed, uh, you don't have glaring uh, uh, misconfigurations or, 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 or data leakage or credential leakage or so, so you now have more moving parts, more variables that need to be synchronized. Um, and so I think MLOps and DevOps and DevSecOps and all the horizontal tools that allow people to work together, I think are becoming much more important. We're spending quite a bit of time on it. Um, so that's for the people who are, who are in work. Um, and then for the, and for those who are, who are, you know, not the beneficiaries of the innovation or not participating it, or, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm now in my, in my childhood home in, in Northern California, in Oakland, California. Um, and this city has changed and San Francisco has changed with, um, you know, with, with, with the, the homeless population and there needs to, there needs to be a, there needs to be a fix. And I didn't realize living in, in Tel Aviv, how acute the problem is. Um, but, uh, but Clint, if you, if you, if you end up finding a technology or an entrepreneur or a solution here, uh, I, I become additionally invested over just the last 48 hours. Well, I mean, so, so along those lines, and, and at, at, at the risk of having a sort of an advertisement for one of our companies, one company that I'm really excited about is a company called Landed in our portfolio. And they essentially partner with teachers to help them buy homes, especially in places like the Bay Area or New York, where there's a very high cost of home ownership. And, and the thing about teachers is they, they can, they've got a very stable job, so they can afford mortgage payments. But it's very difficult for them to save up the if it's a million dollar house, you need two hundred thousand dollar down payment. That can be impossible for teachers, and that creates a, a situation where they can't live in the community where they work and that sort of thing. And so, what Landa does is they're half the down payment. The teachers are the other half the down payment, and they've partnered with the banks to essentially convince them that this is not a loan, but this actually counts as equity. So, so to me, that that that's sort of a, a clever solution to a um, you know kind of a, a yeah, I mean, no, that, that's still kind of like, you know, it's, it's one level up on the, I mean, there's folks that are, you know, can't afford rent, but for the folks that are just struggling at the next level, I think it's a very clever solution. Very interesting. Great. So, I mean, I think you both anticipated one of the questions that we had, but I mean, Clint, regarding the whole, and just to wrap up that topic, in, in terms of, of what you said about this, this uh, overhype on, on, on just AI and, and, and how it started to become more mainstream and sort of a commodity in, in, in some ways. What are the next opportunities regarding AI or beyond that you, that you want to see? Yeah, well, so, so first of all, just uh, the way we think about AI or the way I think about AI and we call it smart data as opposed to like big data. And what we're looking for is how do you connect insights from data 
to a better business decision. So that, that's the key linkage that we're looking for. And, and that's actually missing in a lot of the AI companies we talk to. And, and just as context, so, so I actually think, um, if you look at you know, who's hiring all these AI machine learning experts, and basically it's Google and Facebook are just like these huge vacuum cleaners sucking up all these PhDs in these areas. And they're using it for ad targeting. And ad targeting is in some ways like the picture perfect machine learning slash AI application. I mean, it actually doesn't get any better than that. And I, I, won't, I won't go into all the reasons why that's the case, but I'd say almost every other use case is 10 to 100 times harder to apply AI and machine learning effectively. And, and so, so because of this like, you know, $100 billion use case yeah. with ad targeting, it's gotten everybody all excited about AI and machine learning where really, really, I'd say for most use cases, like, okay, I've got a customer churn problem. You know, what, what happens? Well, if you looked at the data and you said, oh, I've got a bunch of customers here that used to use my product every day and now they haven't used it for a couple of weeks. Well, email them. And it turns out emailing them, right? Or like call them on the phone. And so, you know, you don't need like an AI to tell you that, but if you don't know they've stopped using your product, you can't actually intervene and make a better decision. So, so I, I think there's a huge amount of value, call it at that, you know, just don't do dumb things level before you even have to get to the sophisticated stuff. And so, so I think like, so a lot of the uh, companies that we invest in are still operating at that, just don't do dumb things level. And they're not even getting to the fancy stuff. So that, that you know, that drive us to, to the next questions about internet of behaviors. So Aaron, today we are using AI, we're using big data, we're using analytics, we're using internet of things. We collect all the information and we try to pursue people in order to behave in certain way. What, what do you think about, what are your thoughts about the internet of behaviors as a trend for the next year? Yeah, so, so this sort of unification of our life, right? There's some utopian, dystopic vision of um, your, your, your refrigerator knowing when you're low on something, ordering it so that it gets home by the time you get home, your car starts before you walk outside, the heater's already running, um, your preferences are, are built in, you walk into the office and it says that, right, there's some, there's some you know, internet of uh, vision that, that, that everyone's been working off of, these new operating systems and these new companies that'll be built around kind of this unification um, and in some ways electrification of your, of your life. Um, I think it's a pendulum, right? That I think swings be be between people wanting to be connected and for things to just be that much more personalized or that much easier or that much, you know, your Apple watch connecting to your Apple car, connecting to your, um, you know, your, your Apple home, et cetera. Um, and then it goes the other way too, right? Where people want privacy and to disconnect. And uh, I don't know how many cyber breaches, you know, how many information breaches were away from, from parts of the system breaking. The answer is maybe never, maybe we've, we've come, to a point where we just appreciate the, the personalization more than we appreciate um, uh, the privacy. Um, I think a lot of what, where the innovation is gonna be is existing tools, um, existing things that we can't get rid of, taking a larger portion of our 
life and being that unifying thing. So I think the mobile phone, right, which really knows a tremendous amount about us. I think, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of at, at the peak of this generation of phone. Like there's only so much better a camera can be. There's so much, only so much better, um, faster search results can come to you before, you know, the, the, the returns are, are rather diminishing. Uh, but if you look at how much time you and your children and your colleagues are spending on your phone, it's, it's, it's anywhere from uh, a tenth to a quarter of your day. Um, so I think that, that the, the mobile phone and making sure that it's used in ways that are kind of net positive, beneficial, enhancing, um, while maintaining privacy, I think we're going to see the pendulum. And again, I don't, I don't want to, to uh, advertise a portfolio company, but um, what, one of our companies focuses on this internet of behavior problem, focusing on the, on the mobile phone by basically saying, we're gonna compute all the goodies that you want on the client side, on your handset, um, so that you get the benefits of this interconnection and this personalization and this, um, but it's really for you. It's not meant to be shared with, with the cloud providers or with, uh, you know, the fast food chain or whatever the case may be. So, you know, I, gu I guess I'd summarize it in, in concentration of, of what those things are and um, utilization of what, of the existing architecture uh, and then the pendulum swinging to, toward, a little bit towards privacy. No, that's, I think that's that's actually correct. And I, I think you touched a point that it's really important. It's regarding the privacy and how it became so relevant uh, with uh, today's technologies, IoT and so on. And Clint, I want just to go back to what you just said about this whole Google, Facebook, uh, just hiring uh, PhDs for, PhDs for uh, you know, ad targeting and so on. What are your views in, in this whole a trend of hyper data analytics and micro marketing segmentation. Do you think there is space for small players in the ecosystem to build big things in that space? So short story is yes, but it's but it's a lot harder than it may look. So so if I if I think about by the way, is as we look at smart data and you know how you apply analytics to a better business decision, there's three things we look for. So the first is well if you what can you do, right? So a decision means I'm going to do something differently than I did before. So you have to have you have to have choices in the system somehow. The second thing is what do you want, right? So you're trying to make a decision: to, is it maximizing revenue? Is it maximizing profit? But that has to be somehow built into the system if you're going to like what you're trying to optimize. And then the third thing is a point of view about how the future might be different than the past. So you know by definition machine learning AI, it's, it's operating on a database. And that database is all data about the past. And if the future is ever different than the past, oh, by the way, COVID hits. Now, all of a sudden, you know, that data may or may not be relevant anymore. And so, so I think those are the three challenges that, that I look for in this, this kind of this, you know, any kind of data use. And what's interesting, by the way, with ad targeting, so what are my alternatives? I got a thousand people that want to put an ad on a website. So I got all my alternatives just sitting there. You know, what do you want? Google and Facebook both have very clever, um, essentially auction systems to basically maximize the amount of revenue and that sort of thing. And then how might the future be different than the past? In some ways, they don't really care because they can adapt so quickly, right? So all of a sudden something happens and it's, 
kind of like, okay, you know, China and the U.S. get into a big trade war. And so now all those China ads or whatnot, you're going to want to think differently about it. Well, you know, the first few thousand ads, you're not going to know, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, the click-through rates are radically different. Something's changed. And so their algorithms can quickly adapt to changes in the environment. And they kind of don't care if they've, you know, sub-optimized for a few thousand or even probably a few million ads. But, but you know, anytime you get into a world where the choices are more consequential or it takes creativity or the objective functions are not as clear, it's much more difficult to like apply things at scale. So I think that's, that's one of the big challenges like, into like the hyper data analytics and micro marketing. Um, you know, I, I haven't said that before. I think an, another example of this done well is Amazon. So I had a chance to talk to the, I served on a board with the very first uh, VP of R&D at Amazon. And from day one, they were very much an engineering driven culture. It's like, we're not gonna have designers build our home site. We're gonna have engineers build it. And so like literally every pixel is measured and every click and time on everything. And so that thing has just been optimized like crazy. And you know, it's not a very attractive site from my point of view, but boy, everything on there just works in the sense of getting people to buy things. So obviously today, given the pandemic, a lot of a lot of companies they went offline to online, and we see the increase of micro fulfillment centers. What are your thoughts about about that, Aaron? Are going to be a trend for the next year? Yeah, um, micro fulfillment centers. So uh, lots of thoughts on that. Uh, just just for for one second on on um, Clint's previous point about kind of hyper data in one of the, just cause it was, you know, it's an interesting thing to, uh, to think about. So on the, on the upside, it's everything that Clint discussed um, in optimization, in, in price and revenue and click through and buys. And if you do it intelligently and you analyze the data appropriately, it's really the way that big companies get bigger. And, you know, for the, for the, for the, for the, for the up and coming guys, it's one of the questions to consider and we're not gonna, you know, and, and then I'll go on to the micro fulfillment. Um, is it what cost, right? The more data you collect, the more you compute, the more resources you use, the more expensive it gets. And so I think you're gonna see a whole body of research and investment trend around price optimization for the user, utilization optimization, um, uh, uh, applicate, you know, fine tuning applications in a way that they're using uh, resources efficiently, the ability to give, gain visibility into resource use, toggle up, toggle down, bottleneck, choke. You know, it's, it, I, think, I think in order to do what Amazon and Google did well at scale and for more use cases, you're going to see some really, really sophisticated technologies kind of on the periphery, making sure that it's a sustainable ecosystem. Um, uh, okay. Anyway, that was my piece there. Um, on, on micro-fulfillment, so the answer, as I see it, is uh, there's no real alternative to it. If you look at um, the inefficient, if, if you look at the three PLs, if you look at the way that logistics and distribution works today, it's one of the areas that hasn't had to change in a long time. And it's pretty much an oligopoly, right? It's, it's you've got a handful of providers in all major countries and you know they, they have anywhere from 10 to 30% market share. And 
it's it's volumes over margin and they don't need there you know fedex has has a uh uh parking ticket budget that they budget in because they know they're going to get them and it's just worth it to pay an occasional fifty dollars to not have to do the reverse logistics back to the warehouse that's 20 miles away you can decrease that by a certain percent it, it, it you're basically paying off the government in order to do that uh you know functionally and it's crazy that that's the that that's the standard of care the standard the standard practice today um so i think you're going to see um the human sensor expertise getting much much um more fine-tuned right when you hire an engineer you look at what coding languages they know and when you're going to hire someone to deliver in the last mile you're going to pick someone who gets the 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 neighborhood who gets the city who gets the and i think you're going to start seeing at first partnerships and then i think wholesale um evolution into micro segmentation because if you can increase the margins at that last last mile but even last meter the difference between knowing and, and Amazon's already working on this, right? Amazon has a database today that has uh, dial-in code, uh, 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 padlock codes for all the major buildings in New York and in San Francisco so that when people deliver the prime package to floor 23, they don't have to wait outside. They already know the code and they can tap it. it a lot of people don't know that they collect and use that data. Um, it's piecemeal, it's imperfect. You're gonna have much better ways of doing it. I've my fund has invested in a company that 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 is solving this problem um, and getting the unit economics on food delivery, direct to consumer delivery, traditional package produce is um, is going to unlock so much value that's just being left on the table today. So I don't think I don't I don't see an alternative uh, future. Well, and, and just to add on that, I think there's a there's another implication, a couple of steps up the supply chain. So I, I agree with the micro uh, fulfillment centers, but but there's a macro trend as well, which is if you look at grocery stores right now, incredibly low margins in typically very high priced real estate areas. And if you're going, if, if this trend continues to, you know, more grocery delivery and so forth, you don't necessarily need those kind of stores in those kind of places, at least not with the same kind of footprint they have right now. So you can now build, and people, is a big trend in the U.S. now. There are these like wholesale stores being built, you know, not in expensive places, but in the less expensive suburban areas without all the frills that, you know, the grocery delivery folks are going to. And you, you, you basically add a few extra percentage points to your margin doing something like this. And that's a big difference in these kind of, these kind of like grocery store kinds of margins. So, so I, I think the I think the whole supply chain, especially around things like groceries, is is I think there's going to be some interesting innovations there over the next few years. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we agree that this is something that we as as AC Ventures we see a lot uh, on a daily basis, and how the food sector, the whole e-commerce sector, was disrupted is is it's it's tremendous. So really good uh, uh, vision there. Uh, and I mean, Clint, I just want to go uh, back to one topic that we mentioned before about embedded finance. So it was like the hot topic of the year, or one of the hottest ones. I mean, the whole integration of financial services into other business models, non-financial non business models. Do you see it was just short term? Do you see 
it growing a lot more in the coming years? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so 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 I've, I've been a fintech investor for um, over a decade now, and it, it's, I mean, you know, fintech is really hot right now, and I, I still think we're just scratching the surface. I mean, if you look at like how much value is and how much revenue is created by banks and insurance companies, and, you know, frankly, folks where there hasn't been much innovation for, you know, I don't know, in some cases, you know, 100 years or more, right? I mean, the and so, so I actually think this notion of embedding finance in virtually any kind of application that's out there, it's, it, it feels like a no brainer, just to be honest. I mean, if you look at like financial products themselves, for the most part, I think they're commodities. I mean, there, there's a few things like when you get into subprimes and, and risk modeling and so forth that you might have some differentiation. But for the most part, I think financial services products are by and large a commodity. And and so you think, what's the valuable component then in a financial services world? It's the relationship with the customer. So to the extent somebody's got a relationship with a customer, I think it's going to become even easier to add on, oh, here's a loan product for your customer, or especially things that make it easier for your customers to buy your products or services or interact with. So, so I think embedded finances, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big trend already. And like I said, we're just scratching the surface. And, and, and today, you know, the, the guys, the people follow, obviously, blockchain and crypto. Today, Bitcoin surpasses the mark of $20,000 per Bitcoin. What's the future of blockchain and what's the future of cryptocurrencies, Aaron? So, I don't, I don't own any, uh, any Bitcoins. Um, you know, at some points, I wish I, I, I had... It's a use case that makes a lot of sense. Um, the the store and transfer of value um, in a way that can't be faked or forged in a way that leaves a trail in a way. So there's something that's very um, intuitive about it, and I kind of see growing. I think I think cryptocurrency, and then we'll go to the blockchain as an underlying technology, had to go through a maturation. It, it, it grew up too quickly. And a lot of the early adopters were trying to, I don't want to say topple existing institutions, but seriously challenge them, um, be an alternative to fiat. Or, and I think that this newest version, this newest iteration, um, you've even see it, seen it within Libra, by the way, and its change of tone and who they're working with and what their consortium looks like, that there are there's more stability baked in. Now, part of it's education on, on behalf of the incumbents that they recognize that this isn't you know, inherently nonsense, even though a lot of the early stuff was nonsense. Um, but that you can have this intersection between um, kind of fiscal policy, traditional um, practice and, and digitization of money, right? The, you know, we went from paper to, to, to um, to credit cards, we went from from specie, from uh, uh, from gold to you know the general strength of a sovereign country and how much you trust that country and the route. Right, to, we, we've already gone a level of abstraction more uh, ephemeral or more mm -hmm. philosophical. So there isn't a reason that we should stop where we are currently. It's it's rather arbitrary. Um, I'm starting to see stable coins that are fixed by fiat. Uh, 
backed by baskets of current of currency are being adopted uh, by central banks. And I think that's a good thing, right? I think that's the right use um, to, to, to store and exchange value. Uh, it's good for things like remittance. It's good for things like philanthropy. It's good for so long as there's check and balance and AML and KYC and anti-money, you know, as long as there's, there's the, the correct checks and balances, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a correct use. Um, and then blockchain more generally, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, I think it's morphed into a lot of things. I think it's morphed into uh, deeper introspection or deeper inspection of cryptographic protocols. So um, the ability to, to, to work on encrypted data uh, in a distributed fashion has led to a lot of money going into fully homomorphic zero knowledge proofing, multi-party computation, a lot of the, a lot of the cryptographic uses that, that use blockchain as sort of a piece of how they function, though they aren't selling a blockchain product, they are selling you business use, right? You want to run an algo on my data. I don't want to give you my data. How can we both win? How can I make money off of you? How can you train your thing? Turns out encryption can, can do that and blockchain can do that. Um, but I'm selling you a, a business product, a solution, and not a, an underlying technology. And I think that's where we're going. Yeah, just just to add a few thoughts here. So, so I look at blockchain, one of our entrepreneurs described it to me this way, it's a really slow database that doesn't scale. And so now the question is like, when would you want to use this? And it's like, you would never want to use this unless you have to. And the have to part is because you don't trust either the inputs or the privacy issue and so forth. But that's a pretty serious limitation on the use cases. And so I, so I actually think the whole blockchain area is really struggling on the use case side. So we've got you know, some, some early good use cases, I think, in supply chain management. Um, and, and IBM, I think, is doing some really interesting things here. You know, Bitcoin, you could argue, is a, is a use, case, use case for blockchain. And then it really drops off. If you look, I mean, I mean, there are some theories out there, but in terms of actual use cases where people are really buying and using the product, I think it's really thin. Um, I, I think there's an, a, so I'm personally really interested in the securitization world, security tokens and whatnot. And we have some investments in this area. So I think that's intriguing, but still very early days on the whole blockchain. And the, and the crypto stuff, I think is super interesting. And it's bumping right into you know government sovereignty and you know some issues like that that I think are going to be you know pretty significant um, like Libra for example I think one of the reasons why Libra is like really changed how they think about the world is because they're they're getting sort of I mean that's they could really compete at the level of you know government currency and you know that's just uh, you know that that's a that's a tough fight to pick if you will. No, absolutely, absolutely. I guess you both are right. It's going to be interesting to see how everything turns out in, in, in some years from now, but definitely something really interesting. So just to start wrapping up uh, this whole conversation, in terms of VC investment, I mean, this year, uh, due to the pandemic, we, we saw a lot of VC uh, funds and managers uh, focusing in other factors than they traditionally do, such as the wrong way of the startups, the cash born, you, you said it, Aaron, uh, the whole uh, BC ecosystem relied more on strong founders with, with proven track record and a lot of uh, background. So do you think once the pandemic is over, these factors are going to revert to what normally they were? 
I mean, I, I think some of it is, um, I think some of it has been positive correction, honestly. Um, you know, you had a, a, a period that I observed and it still goes on to some degree in, you know, it, in Silicon Valley in particular, though we saw it in, in, in East Asia, we saw it in Tel Aviv of confusing um, money raised uh, and money earned. Um, you know, what your investors give you isn't revenue. Um, and in fact, it's, it's in some ways the opposite, right? It's in some ways uh, the promise of future revenue. It's almost, a, 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 you know, puts you at a deficit. And uh, I think this focus on burn sustainability um, is, is net positive, right? I, surely there have been over rotations and there have been, you know, some examples of stymied, uh, stymied uh, uh, innovation because of, of, of you know, of, of bean counting and being a little bit too in the weeds and, and, and not letting innovation uh, flourish. So I'm sure that there are good examples of that. And I don't want to suggest that, that you know, th this has been a, a, too much of an overcorrection for too long. But I'm seeing some really good practices uh, instated. And I'm seeing a lot more focus on use of proceeds and investment pitches. I'm seeing a lot more focus within the portfolio of, of sustainability and having to really uh, struggle with and justify you know, new hires in a way that I, I think is healthy. So I, I hope there's some of this uh, that, that stays um, because I think it's a more sustainable model. And you know, Clint mentioned earlier um, that now that this has happened, we have to get ready for the next one, uh, make sure that we're not caught flat-footed. There's a lot of versions of that. And one of the versions is you know, I think this responsibility um, and, and higher end accounting and more focus on the fundamentals um, makes sure that we don't get caught quite as flat footed in the next one. So, uh, you know, I, I see it as a net positive and as something that creates sustainability. Yeah, and if I, if I just look at like, you know, what's going on in general in the, call it in the capital fundraising world over the next, next year or so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'd say that the fears that people had at the beginning of COVID largely haven't panned out in terms of lack of funding. Like Sequoia wrote this memo as like, you know, the black swan of 2020 and advising all their portfolio companies to conserve and whatnot. And then like Sequoia's probably had their best year ever. I mean, their DoorDash went public and, and uh, Airbnb went public and they've, they've like, they've, uh, you know, their take on those is over $10 billion. And and, and that, that's really sort of like the, if you will, that kind of starts the whole process when the public markets are open for business like that and the sequoias of the world, you know, get tons of returns to their LPs, you know, LPs just shovel more money in and there's a huge amount of fundraising in, uh, in the venture world. And I mean, that's going to go into startup companies here, you know, one way or another, you know, by the way, the other big trend that and this has been going on for a couple of years and I see continuing is corporate VCs. I mean, corporate VCs are just piling in. And we even, so we, we do seed stage investing. And I've even seen some corporate VCs show up in seed rounds, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. But, uh, but I think that's a, a huge trend uh, that's gonna continue. And, and oh, by the way, you know, the, the corporate world has a lot more capital that they could put to work if they wanted to than the venture capital world. So that, so they're, a, they're, a, you know, they're like the 800 pound gorilla. And if they show up in a different kind of way, you know, we're all as VCs, we're all gonna have to pay a lot of attention to that. So, so let, in order to wrap up, so if you have to bet on something for 2021, 
just in, in one or two words, what would it be? Intelligent collection and usage of big data for real business outcomes. Um, you know, the shift to online uh, comes with a lot of secondary tertiary impacts. And one of them is that there's just a lot more data created and usable. Um, and, uh, and I think you're going to see uh, a, a lot of innovation there. So you can call it um, on the vertical side, right? Vertical solutions for business problems using big data. And on the horizontal side, you know, ways of, of collecting, storing, and using uh, big data is a, is a core focus for us and, and, and everything that comes along with that, right? So the, the cost of doing business um, with all the data and the storage of it and, um, you know, going cross-cloud, hybrid, hybrid cloud, new data loss protocols because, you know, there's just so much more going on. Uh, so I really think, you know, this, this kind of big data and how it's, how it's kept and used uh, is a huge theme for us. So, so I'd say FinTech, I think, is going to be, you know, continue. I think it's going to be hyper-competitive. So as an entrepreneur, you know, figuring out where you fit in the FinTech world could be hard just because there's so many folks that are jumping in. I think the future of work is a really intriguing area where you've got this, you know, return to work, remote working, and that sort of thing. So, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and people haven't figured that one out. So I think there's, you know, there's lots of room in the future of work for clever you know, for clever new ideas and just thinking differently about the world. Great. So thank you very much to our great speakers, Clean Colbert, partner of Full Ventures, and Aaron Applebaum, partner of Misma Ventures. Thank you, everyone who was attending this webinar. Thank you for following in our networks and happy holidays from AC Ventures. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>